The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life uh, and another great show. Today's show is called Design Thinking, Putting Empathy to Work. And I want to set this up a little bit uh, for us. To I, as uh, my loyal listeners know, I've been uh, interviewing a number of uh of people who are involved in digital technologies and new media. And we've been talking a lot about how these new media are will impact and are, are impacting uh, museums and also the opportunities that they provide. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, Coven Smith uh, reminded us about the importance of digital values, uh, agility, needs focused, usability. And today's program, I think, is a very nice bridge that uh, moves us from some of these theoretical discussions to more practice. Now, the theme that, of course, runs through so many of our shows, understandably, uh, is the importance of our audience. And that no matter whether we are developing a product or a website or an exhibit, uh, we need to put our audiences first. And while that seems like such an obvious thing to do, uh, it's so obvious that why do we even keep talking about it again and again and again on this show and uh, in all of our museum uh, uh, discussions, is that too often when we get into the throes of a real project, uh, we often uh, have set up a situation and a structure that doesn't include that audience or doesn't include it enough. So my guest today, uh, Dana Mitroff-Silvers, is going to help us understand uh, how we can really keep the audience and at the uh, center of all we do and and give us some really practical uh, tips for doing that. Now, I also want to give out a, sh- a shout out to all my exhibit design friends. I have many uh, who have been exhibit designers or product designers, uh, industrial designers for many years, and I know some of you bristle about uh, the term design thinking because you go, well, we always do that. 
And yes, you do. Uh, unfortunately, the designer is often the last person to get into the project. And by that point, a lot of assumptions have already been made uh, that then you either have to undo or do in a different way. I believe that uh, the best thing we can do for ourselves is create good, strong vocabulary wherever we can find it. And uh, design thinking is a good way to establish that vocabulary. So uh, without... Stealing her thunder and getting her on the show, I want to introduce you to Dana Mitroff-Silvers, who is a, a consultant for arts and cultural institutions. I'm going to let her talk a little bit more about her background, but many of you do know her name and know her face. She is a frequent speaker at professional conferences, including Museums in the Web, Museum Computer Network, uh, the American Alliance of Museums. And she's also the former head of the web uh, work at uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. So Dana has a lot to share with us today. And uh, without further ado, Dana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Carol. Uh, Dana, as I ask all of my guests uh, to sort of ground their professional uh, experience as well as uh, sort of insights or uh, aha moments that have moved them uh, through their career and sort of uh, framed their work, uh, the kinds of things that they're doing now, could you just share with our listeners your career trajectory and you know, maybe an experience or two that have particularly influenced your current uh, museum philosophy? Sure. I have a master's in art history, pretty traditional stuff in modern and modern contemporary art, and an undergraduate and actually in broadcast journalism. So I love being here on this, this show today. And my first job after grad school, first real full-time museum job was at the UC Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archives at UC Berkeley. And I was working in the education department on traditional education outreach programs, a lot of print materials we were distributing to schools and educators, uh, teacher guides, leading tours. And this was in the very early days of the web. This was 1995, and museums were just getting websites up. I mean, literally the first domains were going, going online. And the Berkeley Art Museum was one of those early adopters to have a museum website. And I was working in the education department, and I looked over and said, hey, why aren't we putting the stuff we're developing online? Why are we just put printing it? We should be putting it up on, on this new website. And the person who was heading up the web, who was a friend of mine and remains a, a friend and colleague, said, okay, go for it. Here's, here's a little guide to HTML 1.0. There's a computer with Photoshop. You can stay late if you want. Help yourself. Go to town. <laughs> and I said, okay, why not? So I started figuring out how to get these materials online and started taking our educational materials and putting them on the website. And I didn't even know what it was called then. I, I started doing user testing. I didn't call it user testing. I started borrowing the kids of my colleagues and testing what I was doing with their kids. I was putting up a, a guide to the collection for, for K-12. And I would ask people who had kids, can I, can I 
test this with your kid? Can I walk through the galleries with them? And can I then show them what I've built and get their reactions? So this was a pretty formative experience for me because I was using digital technology and I was testing with my end users, but I didn't even know they were called users. I didn't know it was called user testing. I barely knew what the web was, but I knew that I liked it. And this was something that I was really excited about. So that's probably the most formative experience that got me on this path to bringing together technology, museums, and user-centered design. Wow, that's a great that's a great story, and it has so many good uh, lessons for us. And uh, of course, I'm always taken aback when 1995 was you know, was was seems so old and so long ago, uh, but it just shows how new uh, this this medium really is and and that you have uh, you have been at the forefront, including your work at uh, SF MoMA, which I think uh, we can all safely say was one of the first uh, another first adopter for the web and moved the web uh, and some of the web activities far beyond just putting um, a, 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 a brochure up on the web. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking that this was in no doubt uh, a large part due to your influence. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about your experiences at SFMOMA? Sure. So I started at SFMOMA as an intern in the early 90s, and then I left and I went and did other jobs. I went to the Berkeley Art Museum. I went to work at some educational software companies that were also just getting into the web. And when I started at SFMOMA as an intern, it wasn't even about the web. It was about CD-ROMs. This was the era of of educational CD-ROMs. So this was pre-web. And the person who really deserves the credit is a man named Peter Samus, who I call him the godfather of museum multimedia. He, he lives here in Berkeley, California. He still works at SFMOMA as an uh, associate curator of interpretation. And Peter was producing CD-ROMs of content in the SFMOMA collection. He was producing art CD-ROMs. And that was really the early, early, early days. Then it, it became about using Macromedia Director, which is a program that I think millennials probably don't even know what that is anymore, but it was one of the early interactive software programs. And I came back to SFMOMA after being an intern in, in, it was 2001, and the first website already existed. So SFMOMA was another early adopter, putting the, their website went up in, I think, 96 or 97. So the first generation was done. SFMOMA was already a leader in the field in, with educational CD-ROMs and then using Macromedia Director to produce interactive programs that would be on computer kiosks that were in the gallery or in an educational center. So when I came to SFMOMA, we were dealing with the second generation of the website. And I was there and I led the redesign, uh, which, was, which was a critical moment because it went from the early versions of the web, which were about brochureware, which were just taking physical brochures and translating them onto the web, to really thinking about them as places in their own right. And there was a version of the SFMOMA website when I came on board that was starting to already 
consider the web as its own entity and as a as another space that was legitimate and worthy of staffing and thought and resources. And when I came on board, we really professionalized the website and brought it to the next level. And it was a really exciting time because this was when user testing started to become more adopted, the whole notion of doing user research, doing testing, really thinking about the audiences before you go and build something. So that's when I came onto SFMOMA and I was there for 11 years. But the big project I'm most proud of is the website redesign and really taking the website to the next level and doing all of this groundwork before we went and built that website, which involved lots of research, lots of testing, lots of talking to web users and to visitors in the museum to understand what they really needed and wanted. I think that's uh, very, interest- very, very interesting. And I just want to follow up on, on one point you made, and then I, I think we'll, we'll get back on track with, with focusing on, on uh, users and user testing uh, and some of the, the techniques you've used there. But I find that something you said uh, really triggered something in me, and that is when uh, saying that the, you legitimately, you legitimize the web by making it, and I'm paraphrasing, a place. It was just as important of a a place uh, for in involving and uh, uh, involving audiences than say your gallery or your cafe, uh, uh, and that that it was put on equal footing. And I think that that's a challenge still for many museums. We we tend to see the web uh, or the digital media side if it's not in our building, it's somehow disconnected and it sounds to me as if what was done at SF MoMA was connecting it back in and putting it on parity is that safe to say it's yes but it it's of course the reality is a lot more painful and slower than it sounds in in retrospect and and it was a long long struggle and I, I, I feel like I'm just now seeing when I go to conferences and I talk to colleagues that the, this battle has pretty much, I think, been not won, but we're, we're getting to the point where there's a lot more sophistication and, and a lot of understanding and, and valuing the role of digital media. When I started in this field, these were jobs that people did in addition to doing other jobs. So these early web jobs, there may be one person doing it, but in the very beginning, that was a person who also worked in marketing, worked in education, worked in IT, worked in publications. When I came into SFMOMA, it was a full-time job, but in the beginning days, it was still about legitimizing it that this really needs to be a full-time job. There's a lot here to be done. And, And this is, as I said, a legitimate space that we want to dedicate our attention and our time and our resources. And slowly over the years, I think the shift, the thinking has shifted. Institutions have started to recognize this is not going away. There, there are types of programming we can do online that we're not doing in our galleries. There are different audiences. This, this is a whole legitimate field. And, and it's interesting because now I'm seeing that happen with social media. So in the early days, it was about the web and, and getting the resources and the staffing for a museum website. Now, the last few years, I've seen the trend around social media and seeing those positions become legitimized and institutions recognizing, 
oh, this is also not going away. We need to devote staff and energy and resources to social media. So all of these things I've seen slowly changing and institutions starting to recognize that, that all of this stuff is not going away and it's valuable and critical. And I feel like I was there in the early days when, when it was about, about legitimizing what we were doing, those of us working with digital media, and explaining why, why this isn't a job that you would give to a 13-year-old. I remember one time a colleague saying, well, my friend's teenage son built a website, so why do we need to have you do it as a full-time job? <laughs> so I would say, well, you know, I can, I can balance my checkbook, but you don't want me working in the finance department either. And, and, you know, I'd say this is a legitimate job and we have real skills. And yes, a 13-year-old could do it, but do you want a 13-year-old to do it? Not that there's anything wrong with a 13-year-old, but that, those were the kind of conversations we had in the early days. Oh, I I feel your pain. Um, I also have have clients ask me why they need to pay me to write because, of course, everybody can write. Uh, So, you know, it's... you, uh, I, I think all of us have our uh, have have our, our our issues with you know the, our professionalism and our and, and our knowledge. But but I think you're 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 absolutely not you're absolutely right, Dana. Not to make light of it, I remember the first time I went to a museum in the web conference and didn't know anyone. Uh, you know, I'd been going to museum conferences for many many years, and it was the first time I walked into an an, an institute a, a group that uh, every Everyone uh, was doing these wonderful things. I'd never met them before. Of course, they were all working in the basements of their institutions, so I yep. wouldn't have met them. Uh, but it was truly the most exciting uh, meeting that I had ever attended. I think it was uh, was up in Boston, and I I share that uh, that sort of that that uh, that pioneering spirit that you uh, that that you have, and 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 clearly has in in. Informed, uh, informed your thinking uh, over over these years. I I want to get into um, the next transition that you made. Uh, in I know you took a, a a course in design thinking and 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 how that has affected your uh, your professional development and what and what you're doing now. But I think before I launch into that discussion. Uh, We're going to uh, go ahead and take our break. Uh, We will be back in about a minute and a half, so please don't go away. Uh, We will be back with Dana Mitroff-Silvers and uh, deeper discussion into design thinking. Uh, We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. I'm here with Dana Mitroff-Silver. And before I forget, which I have a tendency to do, uh, you can reach Dana uh, on Twitter. She is at dmitroff. Uh, also, she has a great blog, and I would recommend you all to uh, uh, make sure that, that you uh, you are are watching that blog. It's called designthinkingformuseums.net. Uh, it really shares a lot of Dana's ideas that I think are really providing good practical uh, information for us so that we do keep users at the center of the work that we do. Uh, so Dana, we I, I sort of broke in a little bit, but, uh, but I wanted to get that break out of the way and give you an opportunity to talk about the design thinking program. I know you, you took a, a, a a uh, course at, or a, a, a program at Stanford, and it would be great if you could share that program and the design thinking approach uh, to to our audience. Sure. I, I while I was at SFMOMA, I attended an executive education course in design thinking, and that was something that came about. I think similar to my experiences at the Berkeley Art Museum, it was because of a colleague. It was a, a colleague who had worked at SFMOMA and went on to Stanford to get her PhD. And then she was one of she was involved in the founding of the Stanford Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, also called the D School. And she's the one who suggested that I take this course at Stanford. So it was one of those lucky moments in life where I said, ah, sure, if her name is Susie Wise. If Susie says to do it, I should do it. And, and not really knowing exactly what I was getting into, but I think Susie's brilliant. And if she says to do it, I, I do it. So I attended an executive education course called Design Thinking Boot Camp. And I was the only museum person there. I don't think a museum person had ever attended this course. There were a few nonprofit people from from some educational institutions, but no, no museum people. And this was a real profound, transformative moment for me taking this course because design thinking is, in a way, it's something I had been doing a lot of the aspects and um, 
mindsets and methods of this process, but I had never experienced it in such a formal manner and, and gone through an experience like this. It was a three-day boot camp, and it was, it was very profound for me. What it essentially involved was we were tasked with redesigning the passenger ground experience for JetBlue Airlines. So everyone in the course was sent to the San Francisco International Airport, and we were sent to interview passengers, airport personnel, um, travelers, anybody we could find at the airport, and come back and redesign their experience. And I went through this, this experience, and I thought, we could be doing this at the museum. You know, we're doing this, we're thinking about an airport, but the museum is an experience as well. And there are so many aspects of that experience. So we can take these methods and these processes and apply them to our work in the museum. And I came back to SFMOMA and started trying out the design thinking process at the museum. And that's how I got into this. And what really excited me about it is I, I find this as a, a, a method that is a, really connects you with your your visitor it's it's grounded it's grounded in empathy that's the first phase of the process it's empathy it's really about caring caring about the person for whom you're designing whether that's a member a donor a volunteer a, a teacher a scholar it's really about if you care for them you can design better for them and and i found this to be quite powerful and this is accomplished through interviewing through observation through through really getting into the the mind of of your user and this was profound. And then the next stages in the process are, are things that are actually quite, um, none of it is really new, but I found that this very formal method was quite powerful and effective. And I can get into that more if you want now or if you want later in our discussion. I can get a little more nitty-gritty about it. Sure. No, I, 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 I would like you to do that very much because I think that it is, uh, it is important. And is, as you just said, it may not be revolutionary, uh, but I do think that having a, a formal process, you know, we, of course, as museum professionals, man, we love process. We love that almost as, as much as we like policy and strategy uh-huh. uh, that we spend years uh, you know developing our strategies but but more importantly this gives us a you know sort of like a checklist so that if we've got three or four people uh, my colleagues sitting around and we say you know a we've got a problem or you know we think we need to do XYZ um, and I, and I saw you had a wonderful uh, slide in your slide share of you know so very typical of three or four people sitting around a a conference table in the museum uh, and everybody giving their idea, their sort of their solution. Well, we need to, you know, build a new website or we need to do X or we need to do Y. And, uh, and the, the, empathetic part uh, uh, and the user part was, was, uh, was missing. Um, could you talk just a, a little bit more about that first step? What, you know, what, what's the difference between this empathy stage and say, you know, I'm a museum director and I think I want to do an exhibit on elephants and so I, I hire a, a really, really good uh, museum evaluator consultant to go out and do a front-end evaluation about what everybody thinks about elephants and they, you know, they, they 
give me this really great report and I go, wow, look, 53% of the people we interviewed loves elephants. Therefore, we should just do the exhibit on elephants. I feel so much more comfortable. So what's, what's sort of, you know, where does empathy fit with this, this more structured, you know, um, front-end evaluation that we always do? Well, you've, you've given me so many great points to talk about. I want to make sure I, I, I touch on all of them. Um, the first thing you, one of the things you mentioned a little earlier that I think was, was a fantastic lead-in, you said, we t- we're so good at strategy in museums and we spend years on this. And that's one of the points I love to make, that design thinking is biased towards action. And one of the points I, I always, always make in my workshops and in my talks is get away from your desk. So instead of sitting around that conference room talking about elephants and spending years strategizing, you get away from your desk, out of your offices, and into the galleries and talk to visitors. And the difference here is not hiring the evaluation firm, which I still think you should do and absolutely do your formative front-end evaluation, but this is about getting the museum staff out there on the floor talking to visitors not just asking them, what do you know about elephants? I'm going with your elephant example. But why do you care? Why do you think that? Why is this important to you? Because all of the what answers, those are incredibly important things to know. We need to have that data. We need to do our evaluation. We need to collect all of the quantitative surveys and and Google Analytics data. But design thinking is about getting to the why getting to those personal individual stories and helping us care. Because if we're just saying 53% of people love elephants, okay, that's great. We can make a a bland generic exhibition that 53% of people are going to love. But if we get personal stories, somebody tells you, I don't know, a story about a trip they took when they were a child to the zoo with their great-great-grandfather and he had been a zookeeper in Poland. I don't know. I'm making this up. Mm Mm-hmm. You have a real personal interesting story and you can start to brainstorm around the, the nuggets of ideas that person has given you. Think about that person's individual needs and come up with something I think far more innovative and prof- profound than if you just looked at your, your, your findings, your, your, your reports, your data. This is about getting those individual stories, building that empathy for individuals, and then using those stories and those needs of individuals to come to new innovative solutions. So the design thinking process, I also wanted to touch on that because that's something I know I haven't really talked about yet. So it starts with empathy. The first phase of this process is getting away from your desk, questioning your assumptions, and building empathy for your, your visitors or your guests, whatever you call them in your institution. The next step in the process is define. This is where we step back and define the problem we're trying to solve. Because another thing that many institutions do, not just museums, we all do it, we think we know what the problem is, and we jump right in trying to solve that problem, and we find out that's not actually the problem we should be solving. So we may think that that the problem is people don't care about, I don't know, conservation of elephants, um, environments, but there might be something completely different. Maybe, maybe the problem is that people don't know how to um, support wildlife conservation. I don't know. I'm making all mm-hmm, this up. Mm-hmm. It's, this is about jumping to saying, what do we think the problem is? And then designing around that. 
So design thinking is very mindful in separating the problem from the solution. So we step back and we try to define the problem before we start to solve it. And I can give you an example that is not from a museum, but it's a really great example that illustrates this. It was a class at Stanford that was tasked with redesigning an affordable infant incubator for in Nepal. And that was what they were tasked with. The problem was we need uh, new incubators for hospitals. So the students went to Nepal and they started looking around hospitals and they saw there were lots of incubators in the hospitals that worked perfectly fine and thought, huh, they don't really need new incubators. Is this really the problem we want to solve? So they said, well, let's go talk to mothers. Let's build some empathy for the people who are using the incubators, the mothers of infants who are born prematurely. So they trekked out to remote villages and they talked to mothers there. Turned out the, the problem was they couldn't get their babies to the hospital in time. It wasn't that the incubators weren't good. It's that if you have to walk 20 miles to get to a hospital, you're not even going to make it there with your, your infant. So they redesigned, they reframed the problem, and it was how might we give these premature babies a chance uh, to live before they make it to the hospital? And what they ended up designing was this little baby sleeping bag. And I wish I had visuals right now because it literally looks like a little baby sleeping bag. And they're $25 to produce. And they have a material inside that can be heated up in boiling water. It's like a wax-based substance that you can heat up at home and put it in this, this little sleeping bag and keep the infant warm while you trek to the hospital. So that's an example of redefining the problem before you start jumping to, okay, how are we going to solve this problem? So the second phase of design thinking is this define phase. So there's empathize, define. The third phase of the process is ideate. That's when you get into all your brainstorming and your crazy wild ideas. But the point is you don't get into your crazy brainstorming until you've really defined what is the problem that you're trying to solve. Then the next phase in the process is prototype. So there were many prototypes made of this infant sleeping bag, made out of different materials. They were done in different colors. They found out that making them in white would not culturally be, be uh, acceptable because white has different connotations in, in, in Nepal than it does in the West. So they built prototypes and then ended up making this sleeping bag blue. And then the, the, the last phase of the process is test. When you go out and you test Whatever it is you've made, whether it's an exhibition, an interactive, a sleeping bag, whatever it is, test it before you go invest thousands of dollars and months and months of time of making whatever it is you've set out to make. So I know it's a very long answer to your question, trying to break down this de- the design thinking process into the five phases and Please jump in and ask me questions as yeah. brought up. No, this is a, no. I I, w- I wanted to give you an opportunity to you know, put in my mind, you know, the entire process from empathy to define to uh, brainstorm to prototype and 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 test. Um, I keep coming back to the you know sort of like the 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 root of all of this, which is which is empathize, uh, and I think you've uh, in giving your example about the you know the the baby sleeping bag and 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 it not being the incubator problem. I think you've done a a, a great job in putting in my mind this idea of really you know, empathy is more than just knowing 
empathy is one of those, you know, soft, squishy words that make some people really, you know, sort of edgy and nervous uh, because it gets into feelings and emotions. But but that really is is what it's about. It's it's caring. It's caring so very much uh, for for someone, and that means that in some way you have to you know humanly like them uh, and not keep them at, at arm's length. But here's my here's my question in a museum situation where you know I know you and I we've both walked into into projects where you say okay well who's our audience and and they they say well everyone you know we want everybody in the community to come to our museum you know to the exhibit about elephants um how do you then how do you break that down because i can't imagine being empathetic to everyone at the same time or in the same way yeah this is a question that comes up often i hear this often and i i have many answers i mean the first thing is sure you can try to design for everybody and you can end up with something bland and generic that might make everybody 22% satisfied or happy, and that's fine. And if your institution is okay with that, go for it. I mean, like, sure, just try to design for everybody. I, I think my answer is that if, if you feel like you want to come to breakthrough innovative exhibitions, products, services, designs... Um, apps, whatever it is, then this is a process that can help you get there. And this is a process that can get you to, to new places that you, you might not necessarily go in following these traditional methods. I always tell people that design thinking is not a, a panacea, it's not a magic bullet, and it's not a process that works for every institution. It's, it's a process that can be used in complement to these traditional methods. And when an institution says we're designing for everybody, I can say that's great, but let's break down who everybody is and let's try to think about the visitor types that you know are important to your institution because I know most institutions have thought about their different visitor types, whether they use the John Falk methodology or another way of breaking down their audiences. And then let's think about, okay, one of the groups in there might be school-age children. One of the groups might be retirees. Okay, now let's just think about retirees. Let's get a little bit more granular and start to talk to some of them and figure out what makes them tick. What are some of their needs? And get some of their personal stories and then follow the design thinking process with those individuals in mind. And we may come up with some ideas and some things we want to do in this exhibition about elephants that we never would have gotten to if we had just said, okay, we're designing for everybody. So if we say, okay, one of the groups of everybody, I'm going to go with the, let's say, 65 and older. Okay, we may find that there are specific needs and interests and desires and things that we can do specifically for them that may be delightful, that may increase their satisfaction and engagement and things that we can do that we wouldn't have gotten to without doing this, this first empathy phase. So, so that's, that's one of the answers I give people. I mean, this, this stuff, you brought up a really good point that this is like the soft, squishy feelings and emotions, and it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. 
And I always tell people when I'm when I'm working with with museum clients when I'm doing a workshop that design thinking is not a quantitative scientific process. It 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 is about using some scientific methods where we might go. One of the methods is we have an assumption we're going to go out and test it. We have an assumption that people want an exhibition about elephants. Okay, let's go out and break this down and test it and see what can we find. But we're not going to get like the absolute scientific answers, and that's not what this is about. This is about taking those scientific quantitative methods you use and complementing them with this other process that can help you get to new breakthrough innovations, new ideas, like the, the infant sleeping bag. I know it's not a museum example, but it's such a, a good nugget of an example that's really clear that they wouldn't have gotten there if they hadn't gone out to the villages and talked talked to build empathy for the mothers they they would have solved a different problem they probably would have made a really fantastic incubator and that might be fine right um, but it but it sure. wouldn't have addressed the the key yeah. problem i right. i i understand i think that i think that makes a very good point uh, before we go on we're going to take our second break uh, we will be back in uh, just a couple of minutes and uh, fin- and uh, for our final segment with Dana Mitroff-Silvers. I want to remind you of her blog at designthinkingformuseums.net. You can also continue the conversation with uh, Dana at D or at, at D Mitroff. Uh, you can also continue the conversation with me at, at MuseWrite on uh, Twitter or send me a tweet uh, now if you have a question for Dana. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and we will be back in just a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, you're listening to Museum Life, and I'm here today with Dana Mitroff-Silvers, and we've been talking about the process of design thinking, which, of course, is a is just is a is a good process to keep in mind. It's also a, a, a good vocabulary uh, to use. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't use the other aspects of your vocabulary that that you are familiar with. But as Dana and I were talking about at the break, uh, sometimes we we think we're talking the same language and we're really not. And what we were talking about is the use of the word prototype and the difference between uh, prototype and testing. And so, Dana, uh, let's let's just, sh- uh, I think you raised some really good points on the break. I'd like you to share them with our listening audience, sort of what we mean or what you mean by uh, prototyping and testing in the design thinking framework. Yes, so... Prototyping in the design thinking language is, I think, borrowed more from the software term of prototyping, where you're building what's often called a wireframe or a mock-up, or sometimes it's called a smoke and mirrors click-through, where it, it looks like working software, but it's not the real thing, so that someone can test it, which someone being a user can experience it. So when I say prototype, what I mean is building the, the lowest fidelity rough approximation of something and putting it in front of a user and having them experience it. So this is different from prototyping in the shop where you're getting pretty, pretty far, far down the road and you're starting to really fine-tune the physicality of something. This can be prototyping something that is an experience. So, for example, I was working with a museum that was thinking of starting a new public program, uh, a festival. And they, before going and putting on this festival, we, following this design thinking philosophy, we needed to prototype it. And so when I say prototype it, I mean figure out how could you break down this notion of doing this festival and test it before you go put on the whole festival and spend all the money. It was a public program. So what we did was we broke down what were the components of this festival and went out and tested them with visitors. So, for example, this was a festival that was going to have different booths out in a park. And in the booths, one could experience things. So we went onto the floor of the museum and approximated those things that visitors would experience in these different booths because we weren't going to put on this whole festival. This was this was actually in Alaska. So one of the things was to experience native culture. So we actually made prototypes of snowshoes so that people could see what it would be like to go into one of these booths in the festival and try on the snowshoes. So we're breaking down this big thing and trying to test parts of it before they went and 
invested all the time and the money and the resources to make that thing. And they started learning about what would be of interest and what wouldn't. Where would you want to hold this? What parts of, of what cultural activities would you want to hold that, that might not be so interesting or might not make sense to do in a festival setting? I'm going to give you another example at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. I was working with them and they were proto, and I say the term prototyping, they were prototyping where to put the visitor information desk. So when I use the word prototype here, it probably means something very different than an exhibit designer might use the word. So what we did was we literally took a, a, a table and we moved it around one of the galleries with a sign that said visitor information desk. We were testing out locations for this desk. Then we were testing out different kinds of new services you could offer at this desk. So people are actually role-playing different kind of materials they would hand out, different kinds of information they might present to visitors. So this is prototyping something that's not a physical thing that's built in the shop. This is breaking it down and, and trying it out and testing it and getting reactions and then iterating on it. So when I say prototyping, I mean prototyping things that are often not things and doing the, the quickest, lowest fidelity, cheapest way to validate it before you go and launch the program, the service, the exhibition, whatever it is. Because I think that one of the, the mistakes I see museums make over and over and over is spend so much time talking about something and so much time making it and building it and noodling it and perfecting it. And by the time they're out ready to put it out there, it's too late to really make any changes because everybody's totally emotionally invested in it and you've spent so much time and money, it's too late. So what, what I encourage all the museums I work with is to do this quickly and cheaply before it's too late and fail early. So, okay, so you put a, a, a table out on the floor that has a sign that says information desk and nobody came to it when it was over in this corner. So what? We can move it. Let's try something different. You haven't built the physical desk yet. So this is a different use of the term prototyping. And it's a different kind of mindset as well. That, yes. Uh, I, those are both very good examples. And, it, and, and the other um, point that I, I want to make sure that, that our listeners hear is that it is iterative. Uh, it's Fast. It's not, again, not knocking evaluation. I, too, feel that evaluation at all aspects of our museum experience provides us with more data uh, and more information so that we can get it you know, right faster. Uh, but this isn't something where you mock up something, uh, have some third party test it in, you know, away from you. But going, but going back to what you were saying earlier, it's get away from your desk. Be part of that observation. And if it doesn't work with the first five people, change it. Move, yes. move the table. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and one of the other powerful things about about this form of prototyping is you discover new opportunities so so it's not just finding out what doesn't work but being open to new opportunities and another example is from the getty and they wrote a lovely blog post about this on my blog so you can read more about this on designthinkingformuseums.net but they were redesigning their exhibition web pages for the the getty.edu website and they made paper prototypes mockups 
of pages of the web page and of, of simulating the app and went, went out into the Getty Center to talk to visitors and test it with them. What they discovered was there, was, there were some needs that visitors had that were not related to the website and the app that were related to on-site, that visitors, when they arrived at the Getty Center, they were overwhelmed, like, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. They wanted some guidance, like some today's top picks or the staff favorites or some local celebrities must-sees. So they incorporated this idea of like greatest hits, picks, favorites into the website, but they also incorporated it into the paper handout uh, today at the Getty. It's like a brochure that you get when you arrive. So they discovered there were some opportunities for changes they could do on site and this was something that they were open to because they had this really low fidelity prototypes and they just went out and started testing them and ended up not only incorporating what they learned into the exhibition webpage redesign, which is still in progress, but to thinking about what they're doing on site. So because this is low, fast, quick, cheap ways of working and it involves everybody in an organization, it's not just the evaluators going out there. It means that everybody is out there open to new ideas and opportunities and things that you can do that you might not have even thought of or come to if you had just done this one one you know separate evaluation process does that does that make sense makes you know that makes perfect sense and i think what that also does over time is is it in uh within it it would I can imagine it's going to change the museum culture. It makes everyone in the museum a you know take a little more responsibility for what's going on. It, this is not just the educator's responsibility or the exhibit designer's responsibility. Everyone has a role to play. It, it also, I think, over time will make institutions more uh, nimble. Uh, I know that's you know we always talk about create you know creating uh, uh, institutions that are more creative. Well, a key to that is being nimble, and nimble is is certainly not what we often do, particularly in exhibit projects that take four to five years to build. So there may be some ways that we can be jump-starting things with this, uh, uh, with this design thinking approach. Uh, Dana, we've got about four minutes left, and I, you talked about one of your take-home messages, which is, you know, I, I'm going to write that on, on my, uh, my post-it and stick it on my desk, which is get away from your desk. Uh, you know, see what's going on in your institution. Are there I know you have some other uh, takeaways, and I'd like you to have some time to share those with our audience. Sure. Yeah, get away from your desk is is my favorite one because it's 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 free, it's fast, it's it's easy. The second one that I, I like to tell people is just question your assumptions and ask why. I mean, that's really it's it's kind of like being a, a six year old and just asking why constantly. Why are we doing this? Why do we think we need an app? Why do we think we need a new microsite? Why? why? And question those assumptions before you go build it. And then define the problem or the opportunity before the solution. So before you say we need an app about this elephant exhibition, go think, what, well, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Question that assumption. And then go prototype and iterate early and cheap. So go make a, a paper and, you know, 
paper and marker mock-up of, let's say, we're making an app and, and go out and tr- test that out before you go and invest the time and the money and the resources and then spend less time talking and more time doing, which is getting back to that get away from your desk. Spend more time talking, building what I call prototypes and testing instead of sitting in that conference room spinning ideas of, well, this is what people would want and this is what they want. Well, let's get out of our offices and let's find out. So those are my, my big takeaways that I like to, to share with whenever I'm working with museums, whether those are art museums, science museums, natural history museums. It's the same messages I like to convey. Yes, and, and, and the other point I think that that's important, and, and we see this in, in the examples, but I just want to reinforce that this approach works for digital very well. I mean, that was, you know, how you sort of came to it, but it's also working on any kind of physical thing, whether it's an exhibit or the information desk. And I think that that's, uh, that is very important for us to know as well. Uh, well, Dana, it has been a great pleasure uh, to have you on the show today. Uh, I'm sorry we only had an hour because I, I think that there are, we could have taken each of your five steps of empathy, uh, defining the problem, uh, brainstorming, prototyping, and testing, and spent uh, probably a half hour on each. So I think museums that are listening are just going to have to hire you uh, to, uh, to help them see their way clear. And once they do that, I think that they will will be well on their way of creating projects uh, that are for specific people that are creative and interesting and beyond the mediocre. So thank you uh, again for your insights and your thoughts. Again, you can reach Dana at at D. Mitroff and uh, do read her blog. I find it very interesting at uh, www.designthinkingformuseums.net. Dana, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Carol. And I will be back next week with another great guest and program. And uh, I hope that you uh, listen in. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and I will be back next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.